0: Peter, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in discipline in the Australian Imperial Force during the Great War?
1: Yeah, hello, Tom. Um, Well, basically I used to work at the Australian War Memorial, uh, Australia's National uh, War Museum and and Archive. I worked there from 1980 till 2007 and became its principal historian. And in that time, I learned a lot about uh, Australian military history, and the sources and and the, the Australian view of, of Australian military history, informed, of course, by a veneration for ANZAC. Um, and then in 2007, I left the War Memorial, went to the National Museum and then moved on to UNSW Canberra. Um, but I realised that once I'd left the memorial, I didn't have to toe the party line anymore. And I could write about what, if you like, the, the other side of the medal. Um, the, the great Australian official historian Charles Bean talked about In his telling of the the AIF story, he talked about the greatness and the smallness, the good and the bad. And I realised that there'd been a lot about the greatness and there'd been a lot about the good stories of the AIF, but there hadn't been anything much about the bad. So I looked into um, discipline in the AIF to try and
0: understand what it was about. So before we get on to that subject, could you give us a bit of um, background on what the AIF is and how big it was, its leadership, and what was its, what was its engagement in the First World War?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good place to start, Tom, um, because the, the Australian imperial force uh, was almost unique among the, the, uh, the forces of the empire. It was entirely recruited voluntarily. Uh, twice in the course of the war, the Australian government attempted to introduce conscription, and both times those attempts were defeated. Uh, conscription was rejected by the Australian people. So the AIF recruited, well, 400,000 men out of a population of 5 million volunteered, and about 300,000 of them went overseas. And they formed five infantry divisions and one and a half or thereabouts mounted uh, divisions, uh, the 15 Light Horse Regiment. And they served in Gallipoli in 1915. uh, And then the Light Horse went on to serve in the Middle East, 1916 to 1918, but the main Australian effort in the war was those five infantry divisions on the Western Front, uh, serving uh, on the Somme in 1916, and then in 1917 at Bullochor, which is what the, the Australians bit of the, the big Arras offensive is called, uh, the attack at Messines, uh, and of course, the, bit, the big Battle of Ypres. And then in 1918, they they were involved in meeting the German offensive and then being part of the advance to victory. And... In late 1917, those five Australian infantry divisions were brought together to form the Australian Corps. And from May 1918, they were commanded by by John Monash. Uh, And and there's been a very great degree of interest in especially in John Monash, uh, who's hailed as Australia's greatest soldier. And there's been an enormous veneration for the achievements of the Australian Imperial Force in the Great War. Um, uh, And it's A subject which Australians are endlessly fascinated about, Uh, and it's a subject that I was approached with a bit of trepidation because of the degree to which Australians do um, admire and and venerate and and valorise their First World War soldiers,
0: but I thought it was worth having a go. So let's talk about the disciplinary record of the AIF during the Great War. I wonder whether you could sort of start by telling us what, what discipline is, how it's measured. And then could you maybe go on and talk about how their record shaped out during the four years of conflict?
1: Yeah, that, that's, that's a, a good, good way to approach this business of discipline, because it's one of those words that gets thrown around and is used in different ways by different people. And even at the time, uh, And we need to be clear what it what it means. Uh, sometimes it's a synonym for, for smartness, you know, for, for mil- military bearing, for turnout. And Australians were notorious for not being particularly worried about how they looked, so that their drill, their, their parade ground drill, was, was never particularly good. Um, and then it's used in another sense, uh, in the sense of subordination. Do, do these men do what they're told to do? And again, Australians, Australian troops' attitude to subordination was notoriously casual. Uh, right through the war, from the very beginning, these volunteer soldiers... Who were trained by uh, mostly by a very small cohort of professional soldiers, but but also but, but but largely by citizen soldiers. And the A.I.F. retained that citizen soldier ethos throughout. Um, and the third way, the third way in which discipline is used, I think, refers to whether whether troops do what they are told to do. And in battle, the Australians' demeanour was superb. That by and large, the Australians did what was asked of them uh, every time, with some notable exceptions, which we might talk about. So when people talk about the discipline of the AIF, I think we have to accept that it it wasn't a particularly smart force. Um, It wasn't a force that, that, uh, for example, saluting in the AIF became practically extinct by the end of the war. Uh, Australian troops and even Australian officers learned not to bother about those sort of external signs. But in the sense of of was this force disciplined in that? Did it do what it was ordered to do? In that sense, the AIF, AIF had a, a very fine discipline, but there are many, many issues to, to look at in dissecting what discipline looked like uh, and was recorded as and how it looks to us today through the, the, the course of the Great War.
0: And do you think their disciplinary record got better or worse as the war progressed?
1: You, you might think that as they became more experienced and learned what was important and what wasn't important, you might think that their discipline got better. You, you might think that they realised that they had to. There were things they had to do in order to do the job, and in, indeed they did. But on the statistics and on the evidence, on the on the what they said about themselves and what other people said about them, Australian soldiers disciplinary record started bad and got worse. Um, It was always worse than the British. It was noticeably, uh, by orders of magnitude, worse than the British. But it wasn't just a Dominion versus British Army thing, because the other Dominion forces, the big Dominion forces, the Canadians and the New Zealanders, they were less disciplined than the British, but they were much better disciplined than the Australians. So the Australians stand out uh, in in not being well disciplined in the, in the sense that the British army understood it. Um, and there are lots of accounts by British soldiers who look askance on Australians because they're poorly turned out, sloppy in their drill, uh, and they, they wander off. So you know, they don't stay in billets. They go wandering around looking at things. They, they get drunk. Uh, they, they have much higher VD rates. Um, but I think the, the important thing is, is that, the, that Australians who, who started off the war, who started their wars, as citizen soldiers and as civilians and as men who had no military experience, they worked out what was needed to, to fight effectively. And they did that and they didn't bother with the other things. So the the, the external signs like saluting uh, just just faded away. And by 1918, everybody in the AIF is accepting that nobody
0: bothers to salute
1: because they're there to win the war, not to pay uh obedience to their superiors.
0: Which is really interesting because when you look at sort of British conceptions of uh, morale, it's often related to the disciplinary record of a unit. So if a unit's got a bad disciplinary record, it's it's assumed that their morale is poor. And how does a the Australians' disciplinary record relate to their morale. Obviously, morale is a very difficult thing to quantify, but this sort of mindset of many British officers, especially regular officers during the First World War, has this sort of very common link, and it's a a link that's often been used by historians to explore the role of morale and discipline, sorry, looking at uh, morale as a result of their sort of disciplinary record of a particular unit.
1: Yes, look, that's a really perceptive point to make, and you might recall a few years ago I did a book on British territorials in India, and, and I came up against exactly the problem you've identified in that there were some units which were known to be very good, um, but which, when you looked into their disciplinary records, they had lots of, of, of uh, charges. And you think to yourself, is there, a, a real, is there really a, a, a definite correlation between the tightness of discipline in a unit and its, and its effectiveness, its morale? And I started to realise that it was a much more complicated business than just saying lots of charge sheets equals poor morale. Lots of charge sheets might mean a unit which is consciously striving to keep up standards. So just trying to make generalizations, not just across the five infantry divisions of the AIF, but comparisons with, with other forces. Um, so the, the, um, if you look at some of the, let's get some of the figures uh, on the table, because that, that gives us, if you like, ways to, to, to measure this. Um, in the first half of 1917, the, the AIF convicted the convictions for desertion ran at 34 per month per division. Now I don't actually think I think that's an understatement, but they were all these are comparable figures, so they'll do as, as as in relation to each other. Whereas the rest of the BEF didn't have 34 convictions; they had nine. So that tells you that Australians are deserting about three times more rate more uh, frequently than are their British comrades. Uh, and even Monash's 3rd Division, Monash had a reputation for being a very strict commander, but even it had 10 times more offences of all kinds than, than the rest of the 3rd Army put together. So we're getting a picture of a force which is, in British terms, undisciplined. Uh, there's other measures. I, I mean, I can give another example if you like, that that uh, again, taking figures that don't make a lot of sense, but they're comparable across all forces. If you in, in 1918, if you compared the British and the Dominion troops, uh, troops sentenced to to imprisonment, I think per 100 troops, the Australians are averaging 7.86 in jail per 100. The British are uh, uh, averaging 0.97 and the and other Dominions are averaging 1.88. So what that basically means is, is there are eight times more Australians in prison than there are British troops in prison And other Dominion troops, they're twice as badly behaved as British, but but they're nowhere near. They're only only a quarter as badly behaved as the Australians. So clearly, the Australians are not well disciplined in the conventional sense. Now, your question is, does that reflect their morale? And I have to say, no, it it didn't, because the fact is that although the Australians were, were casual in that subordination, and were very assertive in their demeanour towards their officers. The fact was is that they 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 through that those series of battles that I mentioned earlier, that the force as a whole, the five divisions especially, grew in proficiency and professionalism. And so these citizen soldiers, these amateurs in 1914, grew to be very proficient soldiers and and remarkably uniform. That, that the the five Australian divisions seemed to be very consistent in the way that they uh, operated. In those battles, and of course, they developed an increasingly secure uh, and different national identity. In 1914, they tended to be intimidated by British regulars. By 1918, they tend to be contemptuous of British regulars because they are so well disciplined. You know that they're they're men who will do what they're told rather than doing what they think is best. So there is a complete disjunction, I think, between the the, the formal indiscipline of the AIF and and their state of morale which holds up for most of the war. By 1918, the AIF, because it's reinforced by volunteers and and not conscripts, that means that the number of volunteers is going down and down and down. And there are very few reinforcements arriving in 1918. They're mostly men who've been combed out of rear, rear echelon camps or they're convalescents who've been sent back. Um, so that the 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 AAF the Australian Corps reaches I think breaking point in the autumn of 1918 and who knows what might have happened if the war had continued, but but it does hold up their morale remains viable for the whole war.
0: Why was Australian discipline so bad in terms of how the British thought? Why were Australians so sort of rowdy? Why did they riot in camp? Why did they have such high rates of VD? And in many ways you know, they have an amazing assertion, this sort of, one could call it arrogance in a way that you get in certain reports of British soldiers. What societal factors sort of contributed to this sort of um, method of operating?
1: Yeah, that's that's intriguing, isn't it? And it, it certainly kept me awake at night, because on the face of it, they're organised almost exactly the same as their British and Dominion counterparts. They're operating to the same King's regulations. The, the rules are basically the same. And yet, as you say, they they differed in the way they responded to the impositions of military discipline. And I think the key is, is that they're, they're citizen soldier volunteers. Now, most of the, the, the new armies, the British new armies were citizen soldiers, too. They were volunteers. How come they didn't behave the same way? And I think there are are several things that work here. One is is that they didn't have a regular model. There weren't regular soldiers uh, within their units who were providing, if you like, the the model as to how they should behave, which virtually all British units did have, you know, the formation, certainly. uh, There was a model that they should follow. But more importantly, I think, we're looking at a society which is not that far removed from a frontier society, A society which is self-consciously and aggressively male, Uh, Australian workers, whether they were in shearing sheds or or urban factories, uh, were accustomed to expressing themselves. About about 40% of the Australian troops had been trade unionists, and they carried those kinds of uh, attitudes into their military service. So, for example, Australians regarded their officers as the equivalent of the bosses or the managers in their workshops at, at home. And and they regarded sergeants as foremen. So they they regarded those men as men, not that they had to obey, but men with whom they could negotiate. If you wanted to to take issue with the boss about the the rate of pay, uh, you would either go through your union or in a a non-union setting, you would simply have a stand-up argument with the foreman or or the overseer or the the manager of the shed and say, I stand up for myself, I I want this. And Australians carried that kind of assertive demeanour into the army, and they, although the the AIF officers certainly attempted to impose military discipline, and there are thousands and thousands of court-martial cases, and all of the Australian court-martial papers are available in national archives, and in fact, they're overwhelming uh, to go through them. I I sampled, uh, uh, sampled them, but they reveal over and over again that Australians didn't simply sit back and accept that the army had this hold over them, they, they argued the toss. They, they contested the, the rights of the army. They regarded themselves, in Shakespeare's phrase, as warriors for the working day. And once that working day was over, they, they decided that they would please themselves. So in the AIF, you get the phenomenon, even on the Western Front, even in 1918, of men who simply nick off. They go off, they leave their unit, they leave their mates, and they go off behind the lines. Uh, They live in a French village. They'll shack up in a brothel or a pub or whatever. And after they've had a good break, they'll come back completely independently of the formal leave structure. Now, there's a huge paradox here because the foundation of the Anzac legend is mateship, the way in which Australians theoretically and supposedly look after their mates. But on the Western Front, there are so many, there are literally thousands of instances of men who basically did the dirty on their mates. They left them in the line and they left to go and, and have a break. Many of them came back. The overwhelming overwhelming majority did come back, but there's still that paradox between men who stick together and see it through and men who, who look after their own interests. So we're looking at a force which is not nearly as well-disciplined as, as, as comparable forces because it's informed by a very different kind of society now i can't explain why new zealanders are so much better disciplined because they're a frontier society too i can't explain why canadians do as they're told because they're a you know they they're, they're a, a, a backwards prairie society I, I can't explain those things i'm not looking at this comparatively but i think i can explain why the australians exhibited that particular complexion of discipline
0: now one one question one thing that's just occurred to me which i would investigate with you is did the Australian volunteers during the Boer War that obviously a conflict that occurs roughly 10-15 years before the First World War have the same type of disciplinary problems or is it something that you really don't know a great deal about?
1: Now I do know a bit about this um, and a very great friend of mine did a terrific book on Australians in the Boer War called Australia's Boer War, Craig Wilcox's book um, and he shows that Australians it's the same it, it, it anticipates the Great War situation. And in fact, the, there was um, if you look at the way in which Australians served in the Boer War, there were about 16,000 Australians who went to South Africa and they went for most of the war in colonial contingents, uh, you know, um, y- units, smallest units raised by individual colonies, uh, which, which in 1901 became states. And they were, they were regarded as being unreliable and amateur by the British Army. Uh, and and they were used in penny packets. So there was, for example, no Australian brigades in the South African War. The Australian Bushmen and Mounted Rifles units were mixed in with British units to stiffen them and to ensure that that these amateurs learned learned the game. And and interestingly, the Canadians and the New Zealanders, and indeed the Imperial Yeomanry were used in more or less the same way. So there was this great suspicion that Amateur soldiers, soldiers who hadn't been trained in a, in a regular force, uh, would behave in that way. Now, there isn't the same um, amount of, of, um, of, of, of rule-breaking in South Africa, partly because, for example, they're on the veld. They're not going to a and brothels. And if you like being tempted, uh, they're not going on leave to Britain where there are opportunities for crime. And they're also not subjected to the same stress of battle because the com- combat in South Africa is much less intense. And, and many of the disciplinary offences in the Great War, as, as you know, aren't really a, a reflection of either morale or subordination. They're a reflection, a consequence of, of combat stress. So the Bo- But the Boer War does anticipate the AIF in the Great War uh, in many ways.
0: So when coming back to the First World War, now, just picking up on a point uh, you raised earlier about the disciplinary rates of the other Dominion forces, the Canadians and New Zealand Army. Now, one point put forward, uh, certainly by Haig and other generals at the time, was the reason the Australians were so bad is because Australia refused to execute uh, miscreant soldiers. It didn't actually impose a death penalty upon uh, soldiers convicted of military crimes such as desertion, whereas Britain Canada, and I I think New Zealand did, and this apparently had a deterrent effect. Is this an explanation for, apparently, um, Australian soldiers in discipline?
1: Uh, Tom, that's a a big and a long-running argument, uh, both in the Great War, because people were arguing about it then, but also in Australian history. Um, And there is evidence both ways. Uh, As you say, the generals, not just British generals, but Australian generals too, uh, including Monash, put the view that by not executing offenders, they were encouraging men to misbehave. Uh, The reason Australians, unlike the other forces, didn't execute uh, offenders was because because it was a volunteer force, the Australian Prime Minister, Billy Hughes, who was desperate to support the empire and and desperate to introduce conscription, knew that he wasn't going to get more volunteers if he then introduced a death penalty. And he knew that if, if the death penalty was introduced, the volunteering rate... Would go down even further. So, uh, only 120 Australians were sentenced to to death, uh, and not one of them was executed. Some Australians were executed for civil crimes like murder, but none none were executed for military offences. Now, that figure of 120, I think, is quite significant um, because if you look at the the kinds of offences that Australians committed, and and they were numerous, as I've said, that they committed more crimes than uh, all the other forces put together just about. But what they didn't do they 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 went absent. They committed lots of offences, but they weren't markedly more inclined to commit the offences that in the British Army would have got them executed. So, the argument that execution would have was a deterrent to to um, bad conduct conduct actually doesn't wash. I don't think because the Australians, although they weren't executed for cowardice and, and desertion and the other uh, you know, mutiny and, and striking officers and so on, uh, that they 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 didn't commit those offences in, in markedly greater numbers. So only 120 Australians were, were sentenced to death and, and none, of them, uh, none of those sentences were carried out. Um, so although Douglas Haig and senior Australian officers thought that, as, as Haig said, they had no hold over these men because they couldn't execute them, actually that wasn't what kept them at the front. It wasn't the fear of execution or, or in fact, the, the, the knowledge that they wouldn't be executed um, the, 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 because the vast majority of Australians didn't need to be coerced to stay there, although hundreds of them went off uh, for breaks and hundreds of them committed offences. The fact was is that about 95% of them, as in other forces units, the vast majority of them stayed with their mates and, and fought the way through those years of, of slaughter and mismanagement. So I think the, the execution argument, the, the death penalty argument, is a bit of a red herring. And it's, it's arisen, I think, because it's, it's the kind of solution that generals would think of. You know that they've got this this lever, they've got this device, they've got this method of enforcing subordination, and that the, if the Australians aren't using it, it must explain their their figures. But actually, I don't think it does.
0: Now, one thing that's really interesting about the Australian force in, in 1918 is that you you have a series of issues within battalions. So I think there's a D company of for the first battalion of the AIF um, actually mutinies yep. on the battlefield, and then you have a series of um, incidents in about ten battalions out of sixty where a number are being disbanded or merged. What explains these incidents? Are they local or are they sort of um, an, uh, an outcome of wider disciplinary issues, In France, such as, you know, the Australian sort of idea of, of them as the soldiers, or are they accounted for by local issues?
1: Yeah, um, there's two, as you say, there's two sorts of incidents. Uh, there's the, the combat refusal. Uh, and I'd say that one thing we don't know about the AIF, partly because, Although Australians have published an awful lot about it, uh, because of that concentration on, on, on the good rather than the bad, incidents of combat refusal have tended not to have been exposed. Now, it may be that, that there weren't many, that, that in fact it was uniformly good and it stuck to its guns and so on, but there are hints that there were incidents of combat refusal. So, for example, on, on the Somme in 1916, the 50th Battalion refused to go over the top uh, and a uh, Robin Pryor's written about this, and Malia Hampton. So it did happen. And then in 1918, the 59th Battalion, which is a very good battalion in the 5th Division, one of Pompey Elliott's uh, battalions, one of the best brigade commanders in the AIF, the 59th Battalion refused to go forward as well. And as you say, a company of the 1st Battalion refused to go forward, or rather refused to go back, because what happens in September 1918 there is that the, the battalion spends some days in the line is then withdrawn and then is ordered to go back. And it's ordered to go back, it thinks, to fix a, a problem created by the British unit that's just relieved it. And the men jack up. They they say they don't want to go. Now, there are also problems within that battalion. Uh, I think it's down to uh, poor battalion command as well. But it does suggest that, that the AIF wasn't immune from those sorts of of, uh, of problems. And then there's the other type of... of uh, of indiscipline that you mentioned and that's the the so-called disbandment mutinies which in which as you say when the when the number of battalions in a brigade is reduced in order to redistribute men to keep up the the fighting strength of the formation uh i i would say seven out of eight there were a couple of previous incidents but in september october 1918 uh, of the of the eight battalions that were merged or disbanded in order to be merged seven of them jacked up and 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 refused to uh, to follow their, their orders, to be disbanded, to be distributed to the other three battalions in the brigade. The one that that simply obeyed, interestingly, was one of Pompey Elliott's. Uh, I think it was the 60th Battalion, I'm not sure. But anyway, in the other seven, at least seven battalions, uh, the men basically went on strike and again, employing a civilian industrial tactic. And they, they staged sit-down strikes. They refused to parade, um... And, and refused to, to comply with the order. And it wasn't until they were talked around. Uh, Monash was all for uh, disciplining them all, but, but saner heads prevailed. And they, it was agreed that they eventually agreed that they would go to the other battalions, but they'd wear their colour patches of their old battalions beneath the colour patch of their new battalion. And I think this gives us a clue to why the disbandment mutinies happened. It, rather than being a sign of, if you like, poor morale or poor discipline, in fact, I think they're a sign of an almost fanatical attachment to the battalion. And, and Western Front Association members will know this backwards. But British soldiers have got to have a, a loyalty to many things, but, but principally, of course, to their regiment, not necessarily to the battalion of their regiment. The AAF didn't have regiments. It only had battalions. And men basically served in the same battalion for the entire length of their service, unless they were commissioned, in which case they usually went to another battalion within the same brigade. And it meant, though, that, that, that the AIF fostered this excessive devotion to the battalion, this veneration of it, this, this belief that it was the best battalion and the best brigade and the best division and the best force in the war. And, and here, though, uh, Monash is issuing orders saying, right, you fellows can, can just go to another battalion. And, and then, so their men, those men refused to go not because they were poorly disciplined, but because they were so d- attached to their, to their battalion. So I think we're looking at a paradox there that they said they'd fight, but they only wanted to fight in the battalion that they were a part of. Now, technically, and on the face of it, and certainly in British eyes, that's a sign of poor discipline, but it is also a sign of a, a force which has gained a, a sense of, of its uh, identity and its, its, its proficiency through three long years of four long years of combat
0: one aside on that. Were these battalions that were raised for the AIF very much built along local connections, or were they units drawn from across Australia? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and the, 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 um, I
1: suppose the, the, the sensible answer is, is yes, they, they started off very local. So um, the 4th Battalion, for example, was raised from men in southern Sydney and, and the southwestern suburbs of Sydney and into the country in, in the close to Sydney. Um, the 10th Battalion only contained men from South Australia and, and some from Broken Hill. Uh, the 11th Battalion was only Western Australians. And you can see that the that, that battalions had a very strong state by this time, not colony, but state identity. But I think we can take that to an extreme because, as you'd expect, as the, the reinforcement crisis grows, as losses increase, as it's harder to find men from those areas men start to get cross-posted so convalescent men can be posted back to different battalions within the brigade men get promoted and moved around and by the end of the war they have a much less a less firm attachment to their their home state and again this is this is a a paradox because if they lose their connection to the state and initially it was a very very highly state-based force uh you know brigades were raised from within states the first first brigade and and the second brigade were raised from New South Wales and Victoria, but but by the end of the war, they know they, they have a much weaker association with or identity with their state, and in what they're identifying with is both Australia as a whole. You know, they've got their Australia um, badges, and they're also identifying profoundly with their with their battalion, to an extent with their brigade and division, but principally with their battalion. So, in fact, um, it just just goes to show the the heightened the the veneration that battalions have in the AIF story.
0: One question I was wondering is, did Australian forces deployed in the Second World War and lastly in Vietnam have similarly bad, quotes bad disciplinary record, or is it only something which is very much confined to the First World War?
1: Yeah, it's it's still something which you is apparent in, in both of those conflicts, but, but it's, it's, a, it's diminishing as the century goes on. And in fact, if you look at the Australian army today, Uh, you will not find sloppy soldiers Australian regular soldiers and the Australian army has basically been a regular dominated force since the late 1940s it's now as smart and as professional a regular force as you can find so that that and why well partly because the citizen soldier ethos is almost completely diminished Uh, the army reserve as it used to be the citizen, citizen soldiers and the army reserve were diluted and and very much diminished so so that 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 process happened through the century so but if you look in the, the second world war and nobody really has in the sense of analyzing the figures although there are some really interesting projects by legal historians going on because again those court martial records exist for for all of those wars Um, their disciplinary record is better in the second world war now you think why is this it's partly better i think because the army gets better at managing uh, wartime volunteers it gets its officers are more experienced remember that the senior officers of the second world war were the junior and regimental officers of the first world war so they they made sure they didn't make those same mistakes also they they tended not to fight directly alongside british troops in in north africa they were alongside british troops uh, but then from 1942 basically they're fighting in new guinea and, and although they're alongside Americans, it's really australia's own war so the the the, the officers make sure they don't make the same mistakes and the same comparisons aren't aren't viable. But I think there's another explanation, and that is that that if you think that the AIF of the Great War is infused by this frontier ethos, that's greatly diminished uh, as the century goes on. Australia is already, by 1914, essentially an urban nation. It's one of the most heavily urbanised nations in the world. Um, It still has that, that trade union inheritance, and in fact there are cases in the Second World War where troops again down tools and refuse to do things and acting like a military trade union. But but you don't get, uh, it's not as rough so that there are, although I'm sure sergeants would still beat up privates behind the toilets, uh, as happened a lot in the Great War, it's, it's, it's a much weaker uh, 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 way of proceeding. And in the Vietnam War, again, there's a book being produced at this very moment on an analysis of the Vietnam War. Uh, and it's, It's disciplinary record in the Australian task force in Vietnam, um, which was both a regular and a conscript force mix, but but heavily infused by the kind of regular ethos that we saw in the Great War in the British Army. And as a result, although uh, Australians in Vietnam do uh, do, do make hay, um, they get drunk, they they catch VD and they, they well they don't go absent much because there's nowhere to go. Um, but their disciplinary record is much more closely that of a regular army than a citizen force.
0: And my final question is, where can people learn more about your research?
1: Oh, well, if they're really clever, they might be able to find my book, which is called Bad Characters, Sex, Crime, Mutiny, Murder and the Australian Imperial Force, which was published by Murdoch Books in 2010, I think. Shortly thereafter, although the book won the Prime Minister's history, jointly won the Prime Minister's uh, history award for uh, 2010 2011, um, it's out of print, uh, partly because Murdoch went broke, or rather, were taken over. And sadly, a terrific publisher, and they they did four really good books for me. um, Perhaps I contributed to their downfall. But it means, though, that the, the, this... And it's, it's really the only analysis of discipline in the first Australian Imperial Force. There's a, a, a self-published book, I think, on, on military police, which deals with, with some discipline. But there isn't much... It, there's hardly any analysis of the sort of things that I've, I wrote about 10 years ago uh, and which really need to be explored further. I mean, I'm really interested, for example, in the question, were Australian divisions really as uniform as they look? Uh, they all look the same. They've got the same uniform. They've got the same types of colour patches. But uh, I have a PhD candidate uh, who's doing a, a project on the 4th Australian Division, and it's looking like the 4th Division is nothing like the 1st Division. 1st Division was raised in 1914, went through Gallipoli, um, came from all states, but with one brigade from New South Wales, one from Victoria, and a third from the outer states. The 4th Division was, was raised... uh, from reinforcements in Egypt in early 1916. uh, And it contained a much higher proportion of troops of volunteers from the outer states, from Western Australia, South Australia, Tasmania, and Queensland. And it looks like it's got a completely different complexion. So there's bags of work to be done, investigating these sorts of characteristics of of a force that we all think we know really well, because every Anzac Day, people celebrate the achievements of the Australian Imperial Force. And it's, it's something that everybody thinks they know about. But the more I look at it, the more I realise that we really don't know as much as we think we do. And if somebody else comes along and does what I've done, but but goes and looks at those court martial files, they may well come up with, with quite different conclusions and quite different arguments. And if they do, I'd be glad to hear it. So, but for the moment, if you're lucky, you might be able to find bad characters um, in a secondhand shop.
0: Actually, uh, just as a note, I actually did pick up uh, one book on Amazon and it was an extra large print and it's by Read How You Want. And so that's what I had to download. Uh, so not if. download, order. So it, this will stop a, a magnum round of the thickness of this one. But it, um, it's a great work and it is it is there. Um, so don't despair. But on that bombshell, Peter, thank you very much for your time.
1: Tom, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for your questions and and good luck with the series.